Hello, beautiful people. In today's episode, I get the pleasure of speaking to someone who I've looked up to from afar for a long time, and that is Mark Devine. Mark is somebody who has influenced me with his writing, in particularly in two books, The Way of the Seal and Unbeatable Mind. And these two books just give you the type of mindset that are needed in order to achieve your highest version, and I highly recommend both of them. And so in this conversation, I got such a feeling of peace and calmness from Mark that was a reflection likely of all of his training, both mentally and physically and spiritually. And so look out for that. I think you'll really find some sort of peace from the words Mark offers. That's pretty much all I've got to say about the episode. I really enjoyed this one, and I think you will as well. If you have any feedback about the episode, let me know on Twitter. At Hey Danny Miranda is the best place to find me and the best place to give me feedback. But until then, here's my episode with Mark Devine. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. First thing I want to start with is the situation where you find out about meditation and take us through when you stumble across this the Zen practice and it leads you to to discover meditation and it just leads you to discover your life's purpose. So I'd love for you to take us through that that story to begin with. Sure, Danny. Yeah, it's one of those um you know, retros in retrospect, you can see how these things are you know, so critical. These moments are so critical to defining your entire life, right? And as we look back in our lives, once we get a few years under our belt, you can see some of these moments that are like, wow, you know, I see why that needed to happen. And had that not happened, I would have gone in a completely different path. You know, I'd still be in upstate New York working for the, you know, legacy family business. And I'd be probably a fraction of the man I am today. And so I attribute all that to this uh, experience that you just opened with. Now, the backstory is, which I haven't told many people, and I and never, didn't show up in any of my books, is that um, my freshman roommate at Colgate, and I know you went to Colgate for a, a while, so you know what that experience is. And I, the dorm was like KDR or somewhere. No, that was a that was probably a fraternity. It was Kensington or something like that. At any rate, I had a you know a typical dorm experience as a freshman. I had a freshman roommate, David Bowman, the great guy, and David was an asshole. So I say that in the same breath. He was a great guy, but he was an asshole. Like he really, really was immature and he just liked to piss off the, the girls in our dorm for some reason, and especially the ones who lived underneath us. I remember he he brought a, a dumbbell back from the gym, like literally stole a dumbbell, you know, so he could do dumbbell curves in our, in our room. But he would sit on the top bunk and he would literally throw it onto the floor below us, you know. Just in the middle of the night, just to wake up the girls who lived there. That's so stupid freshman school stuff. But when I, you know, I was a, um, a, a competitive swimmer. So I went to Colgate and I swam competitively. So that was kind of my daily thing. And 
And Dave was kind of like, hmm, I wonder what I'm going to do. And so he's kind of bumbling around. And then he stumbles into a karate class that was being held in the gym. And he, and he signs up, Shotokan, Japanese karate. So he starts to study of karate. And I remember him coming home in his white belt and all sweaty. And then it was yellow belt. And then, you know, I think that first year he, he made it to like blue belt or whatever the ranking was. And he stuck with it. Now, I didn't live with him after that freshman year, but I, I would frequently see him. You know, you just I wasn't super close to him, but I see him around. And by the time he graduated, he was a black belt wow. and he had changed. Now, I'm not suggesting that David took up meditation. I don't think he did. But there is a certain amount, as you're aware, of meditative quality to the martial arts as well as like yoga, right? There is, there's an aspect to it that, that touches on some aspects of meditation, concentration, you know, focusing your mind, mental repetition uh, beyond thinking about anything else, right? So you're kind of like um, greasing the groove of mental patterns and having a neuroplastic effect that's changing your brain when you do those practices. And that's why they're called paths or ways instead of like just learning the combat art. The, the purpose of a karate do, do means way, versus like a jujitsu. Jitsu means combat art or combat fighting or some science of fighting, is to cultivate one's mind and spirit through the physical movements of the art as opposed to just learning how to rip someone's head off. And so I saw him change. And I couldn't really put my finger on it. It was just like he was, he was much more respectful, first of all. He was much more humble. He was quiet. He listened a lot more. He had a look in his eyes that was different, right? And this is all early, early in his training. So I noted that. You know, I didn't note it in the sense of like, wow, David, you look different. You act different. You, you, I just noted it, right? And, and here I was four years later. Um, I wasn't really much of a better swimmer. I was a little bit better and um, I was older. Probably the most significant thing that happened to me was my uh, trip to Europe junior year. That definitely changed my perspective and, and in a sense changed who I was, but nothing compared to what I saw in David. So that's backstory. Now, fast forward, I go down to New York City, you know, your, your turf, and I've uh, graduated. I've got a job with Coopers and Library, and they're sending me to NYU to get my MBA, all this stuff I wrote about in my book, The Way of the Seal. And um, I got I've got to get my CPA. So I've got all these targets and I'm just like starting to go after them. Learning the new job, learning the whole culture of working in a public accounting consulting firm, all the clients, you know, big, big industry, financial services, whatnot. A lot of new things coming at me. And I continued working out and I wasn't satisfied to like watch my body go into decline like a lot of the corporate people that I saw around me where, you know, that was then, you know, what I, I was an athlete in college, but that's no more. And now I'm in this white collar trajectory. And so at least back then, you know, it was maybe go to the gym a couple times a week. But for me, you know, I was an athlete and I wanted to continue to be an athlete. I didn't have to be an Olympian or anything like that, but I wanted to continue running triathlons and I wanted to continue to evolve. And, and I had to figure out how to fit that in my schedule. So I woke up early in the morning to go for a run and PT. And then lunchtime when everyone else would go out for lunch, I would go to the gym and I do my version of a high intensity workout, you know, because I had to be in and out in an hour, showered up back in my suit and back in my office. 
And then I had to be at school. So the, they would let us off because we were going to night school and it was part of our work requirement. Um, they would let us off at five, which is unheard of because most of the, our peers were working to nine, 10 o'clock at night. So there's a little bit of resentment, but they let us off at five, but school didn't start until seven. I figured you had to get something to eat and change and whatever, get down to um, World Trade Center where NYU Business School was back then. And so I, I looked at that and said, holy shit, I got two hour block, which, you know, take the travel out of that. I really have another hour and 15 minutes to fit something else in <laughs> physical, <laughs> of course, right? This is the way my mind works, but I wasn't sure what that was going to be. And so until one night I was walking home and I was walking down 23rd street, I was living on 22nd and Broadway. And I heard all these shouts coming out of the second floor of this building. And I stopped and literally I look up and right above me is this big flag hanging off the front of the building. And it said world Sato karate headquarters. And I was like, Hmm. And then right then I remembered Dave. And so I said, okay, I'm going to, this is interesting. This is a sign. And so I went up into this dojo. It's gorgeous, you know, like 2000 square foot, beautiful hardwood and floor. And there were about 50 students, you know, just getting sweaty and getting on. And, and in the middle of the Marais, the morass or whatever, this fray of energy was this like five foot five, five foot four Japanese man. And he had a presence about him. Immediately reminded me like of where Dave was going, but it was something really different. And I just stood there and watched for a while. And this guy was like, you didn't want to mess with him. You know what I mean? He was deadly serious. But then suddenly he would, he would crack a joke and he'd just start laughing like a schoolgirl. You know what I mean? <laughs> like cracking himself up. And he was so respectful of all the students. And yet he was this badass, 10th degree black belt, you know? And I found out later, of course, that he was the founder of this style of karate called Sado. And he was a Zen master. And so I joined right away. And I didn't know about the Zen part until like two weeks in, I noticed that there was this one class on the schedule on Thursday nights that said meditation. I asked if there was a prerequisite. They said, no, mostly black belts go, but you know, if you want to go, you can go. And so I went as a white belt and I was the only white belt there. And there were only like 10 other black belts out of hundreds at this school. Like this, how big the school was. And he had students around the world. He had a few hundred thousand students around the world already back then. That was 1981 or 85. I'm sorry, 85. So I went to this meditation class and, and it was Zen, right? So Zen and the martial arts have a long history. And so he had learned Zen and it was part and parcel of his, his martial arts training when he was younger and he kept it going. And, he, and that was a big part of the mind, body, spirit, you know? So the karate can train the body and the mind and, and the spirit gets involved, but it's kind of like that saying, you got to find inaction, 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 in, 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 inaction. And to find the action in the inaction, you have to stop all the action. And that requires you to sit in silence. Now you could stand in silence too, but that's a little less comfortable for most people. So we sit in silence and then you suddenly notice all the action that's going on in your brain, in your mind. And so there was a very distinct process that he put us through. It's kind of like Zen boot camp, <laughs> you know, it's painful. And, um, and it was hard and I failed miserably, but I respected him so much that I just kept going. 
And it was awesome because at the end of these 45 minutes, sit in silence sections, sessions, he would um, do a little Zen talk, you know, with his, ch his chalkboard, you know, with his white chalk and he'd write this kanji characters really slowly. And we're all sitting there patiently. And then he would write what it meant in English underneath it. And then he would tell us, you know, he'd tell a story and, and I got so much out of those. In fact, a lot of my teaching today, you know, I relate back to some of these principles that he taught. It's really cool. Now, I know I'm going long with this story, but the practice, I did this practice for four years. So let me contextualize this, four years. Within that four years, I finished my MBA. I finished my CPA, became a CPA. I had four years of solid work experience at Cooper's and Library and then Arthur Anderson. I got my black belt. Now, those three certificate kind of external measures of success, CPA, MBA, and black belt, all came to me November of 1989. Wow. And several weeks later, I was on a bus to Officer Canada School with a guaranteed billet to go to SEAL training afterwards. So something changed. Something dramatic changed in the way I saw the world, the way I saw myself, the way my brain worked, the way my body and brain connected. And my whole experience of life changed dramatically. And his heart, you know, we would, we would require hours to unpack how and why, right? But it, 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 it made me so committed. I was so stunned by what was happening to me in terms of the brain opening up, the perspectives I was seeing, that, you know, the, the, the excavation of beliefs and stories that weren't serving me that then replacing them with better stories and, and, um, and create, creating, cultivating what I call vision as opposed to just re reacting to life, but creating this vision of what is it that I'm meant for on this planet as opposed to what did my parents want for me or what did society want for me to do or how to act. All that stuff started to come from within. It came from within in terms of a sense of knowingness a sense of archetypal drive, uh, imagery that would come up spontaneously. And when I started to ask better questions, getting kind of answers to those questions, both through contemplation, journaling, insight. All of this was a result of beginning and sticking to a meditative practice and turning my attention from 100% outward to at least 50% inward, right? It, it probably, you know, not in a time standpoint, you know, it wasn't like I was spending 50% of my time meditating, but once you turn your attention inward and you keep guiding it inward through the practices, then from a energetic or kind of a metaphysical standpoint, you, you're really shifting to where you can get to this kind of balance, this 50% balance. And that's like the, the line between the yin and the yang symbol, 50% inner, 50% outer. And then that becomes like real time where inner and outer are merged. And, um, it was profound. And, and, and you know, I'll, I'll end the story with this. When I got to SEAL training, you know what happened, right? I, I showed up with all that experience and, and I was, every day I was able to wake up and, and the meditation then had become kind of second nature to me. So I would do it, you know, pretty, I would get into a state very quickly in the morning through my breath and my posture of my mind. And, and then I was very clear about where I was, where I was going, what I needed to do that day. And the meditation had allowed me to stay radically focused on whatever task they were throwing at me and to stay non-reactive, which made me, allowed me, I should say, to be a, an effective leader. Mm 
because I wasn't so caught up in my drama and reacting. I was really, you know, in the center of it all and being more responsive. And so I graduated as number one in my class out of 185. We had 19 graduate. I was number one and my boat crew, six others were with me that day. It was pretty cool. You know, well, We'll get to Anyways, the sorry the about Navy that seal. long, 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 no, long intro. <laughs> no, I gave you I gave you a big question and you gave me a big answer. There's a lot to unpack there. And one part that you didn't mention specifically in that story was about how when you started meditating, you got this idea that you were going to be a warrior. Mm-hmm. And you it was almost like a download from somewhere. And I'm curious, what do you think that that was that said, you know, you started looking inward and you start to say, okay, I'm going to be a warrior. Do you think that is a, like, do you think that's God? Do you think that is, is the universe? Like, what do you think that the download that says I am a warrior? And then two days later, you see the Navy SEAL poster. What do you think that is? You know, whatever, whatever I think it is, is wrong. Let's just start there. (laughs) Right. Cause it's, 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 you know, <laughs> anything that I think about a thought that I have is going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. It's powerful. So just know that right up front. I don't know, but I can tell you what I suspect or kind of what, how I would interpret it. And other people will probably interpret it differently, but I think we do have, I do, I do believe in reincarnation. Let's put it that way. There's a lot of evidence to that. All the spiritual traditions talk about it, including early Christianity. And and my own life kind of points to that. And so that we're brought into this or we choose this life. And it's actually very, very special to have an opportunity to be human. This is why it's it's crazy. So many people waste it and they don't wake up to that. Like it is an incredibly precious opportunity because as a human, we can self-direct our growth. We can evolve. And even if we don't wake up to that point, life is going to evolve us, right? That's the point. It's one of the points is to evolve your consciousness, your spirit. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, it means that, you know, this idea that we have a body, but this body isn't us. We have a brain. The brain isn't us. We have a mind. We're starting to get closer. That mind is still not us. It's the spirit. That's the true us, right? The essential nature of ourself. And the spirit is an aspect of God. God's a tough word to use for that. There's many different words from different traditions we could use. Spirit that run through all things, right? Gaia even, or um, that's more of a naturalistic way of looking at it, or Brahman. But, you know, uh, you know the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, right? Father would be God. The Son would be the God within us. The Holy Ghost would be the Spirit that runs through everything. So it's, there's manifestations of that. We have an aspect of that within us. But that aspect within us is a creative expression. It's like almost like a thought that manifests as, you know, as a spirit that emerges with mind. And then it, it becomes a body through that thought, through, you know, through the incarnation process. I know that's pretty metaphysical. At any rate, um, to, get, to pan out a little bit. So sitting on the meditation bench, you're, you're doing what the Tao is called turning the light around. You know, if you consider that we are all light at a, let's, let's use a different version or a different um, lens. What, you know, let's use the physics lens. From the physics lens, you know, we are 
obviously there's you know organs then cells then molecules and then atoms and you know and then beneath atoms are quarks and photons right so ultimately just like any matter we are ultimately light and then there's there's kind of pure light in there which is the purest form of light is our spiritual energy and the traditions the, the spiritual wisdom traditions say that spiritual energy is what allows us to incarnate and is what gives us awareness and it resides in our heart but it's you know of course um has to in order to express itself in this material world it has to work through mind which then uses the body and the body includes the brain and the other aspects of brain which include the heart and the gut and the your entire nervous system and your skin and, and everything so the body is really the brain, but also it's your form of locomotion and acting, you know, me mechanism for acting in the world. So body, mind, body, brain, mind, spirit. They're, we can talk about them separately, but they all are one. They're fused as one. Now, mostly because of the way our brain works and the way we're taught in the Western world, we are all outward focused. And that means we're focused. We think that what we see and do is the true, the only reality. And so all of our attention is outward. And so it's akin to like using our eyes and sending our light outward all the time. And then, you know, we get reflection backs and that's what helps us create this sense of reality that we're in that's co-created. But when you turn the light around, that's what meditation does. You close your eyes or, you know, you can learn to do it with open eyes. You close your eyes or soften your gaze and do both. And you turn the flashlight around. So now you're looking within. And that journey within helps you start to appreciate that the real reality starts within and then it's expressed outwardly. And it's kind of like saying that everything happens first in the spiritual realm and then it happens in the physical realm, in the material realm. But and then, and that's why, you know, people who are in the new age spirit, you know, stuff think, oh yeah, everything is created in the mind and I can manifest everything I want. Well, that's sort of true, but the reality is everything's created in the spiritual world expressed through the mind. And then the physical world kind of, if you take, you know, profound action, it'll catch up to you. Or if you don't take action, you'll get slapped down or something will kind of reveal itself to you because there's just almost an infinite number of factors kind of affecting this and then you know like the butterfly effect you start thinking a certain way you're affecting those factors and then you're starting to kind of organize the immaterial to affect the material and that's where synchronicities come from and whatnot so so that's what happens when you turn the light around through meditation and you're and you're and you're open-minded and 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 faithful this is what faith is right because you have to become your own experimenter you can't trust anyone else on this you have to and everyone's process and path will be different you become a, a study N equals one where you're the, you're the experiment and you turn the light around in yourself and you begin to ask better questions. You begin to genuinely look for awareness, consciousness itself. You look for your spirit and, and you could do this with imagery. You can do this just with pure intention. You can do this with prayer and contemplation. And there's a specific process that's taught by different traditions. You know, the Zen had one process, you know, the, the Tibetan Buddhists have another, the yogis have another and I have a different one with unbeatable mind based upon my understanding and what Westerners need. And, um, and so to kind of like cap your question, to see if I can actually answer it, sitting on that bench, getting information. When I turn the flashlight around and look within, 
how did I get information that said, you know, my archetypal energy right now was to really be a warrior and a leader and to, and to fulfill that in a way that was unique to me. And that was my, that was what you would call my Dharma. So there's karma and Dharma in that yoga tradition you're probably familiar with. So Dharma is, this is your calling. This is what you're meant to do in this incarnation, this lifetime. And, and karma is kind of all the energy bad and good that you dragged into this life. And then you're either going to burn that off or, or accrue more. Right. And so if you don't fulfill your Dharma calling, then you accrue more negative karma and you're going to have to come back. You know, this is the theory, come back and kind of do a, do a do over. Right. <laughs> and if you don't fulfill your calling, or even if your calling was like maybe just to learn one healthy thing or help one person, but you're, you're an asshole your whole life and you're, you commit crimes and you're a murderer, then guess what? You know, you kind of go back to zero. You, you accrue more negative karma. You devolve and then, you know, you got to hit bottom and then kind of crawl your way out of that. It's fascinating stuff for me. And I know um, some people think it's kind of different for a Navy SEAL to talk this way, but I was a SEAL for 20 years and this philosophy and idea served me very well, right? It kept me alive on the battlefield. It helped me contextualize everything about why I was a warrior and also to have deep respect and even love for my enemies. So I was not um, willing to take unnecessary, you know, violence unless it was like really spot on and required, you know what I mean? In self-defense or something like that. Yeah, speaking to that, you said something on, uh, the Whoop podcast, you said, war is abhorrent. True warriors are the last to pick up the sword or just pick up the weapon. Right. Was When did you come to that realization? Was it after being a Navy SEAL? Was it sometime in the karate practice? Was it in the meditation chair? When did you come to that realization that war is abhorrent? Because that is something that when I say that, people will say, this guy was a Navy SEAL. He graduated first in his class. That doesn't make sense to a lot of people listening. So if you could give some context to when that realization came, if you remember, that would be incredible. I don't think it comes in like any one moment, right? It's a, it's an evolution of your character. So mm -hmm. when you turn the light around and you begin to look for spirit and you find spirit and you start to merge with that as your seat of awareness, then every decision you make starts to become different. Let me say it this way. If you never practice meditation, there's a high likelihood that you're going to be completely merged with ego, completely merged with your thoughts and emotions and story. And those types of seals, even though one might consider them a warrior or green berets or rangers or just infantry or Marines, those types of warriors, um, they can be tactically really proficient. They can be excellent operators. They can love their teammates. They can be very patriotic and they're great warriors, but they haven't transcended ego. They're not going to find that kind of respect for the entity. They're not going to be able to see the sameness because they're just looking at the differences. And so that's fine. But I tell you what, you know, I, I know SEALs who are tortured because in that moment, they decided to pull the trigger because in their view it was the right thing to do and they'll never know if that woman or that child was really an enemy combatant or even if they were they'll never know if there was a different way to do it you know here, here's someone example of someone who had 
Um, I don't know if Murphy, Michael Murphy had meditated or anything, but you know, you don't have to meditate to transcend ego, right? Some people are born that way, but um, it's estimated maybe 5% of humanity has really transcended ego and is operating out of a truly connected world centric, you know, instead of an us versus them ego or ethnocentric point of view. Meditation leads you to that, but you can be born that way. Or, or, or have a life experience that just suddenly shatters old paradigms and brings you there, right? So I'm not saying that a lot of people listening can be like, yeah, I'm there. I don't, or you can be saying, I don't know what you're talking about. And if you think, I don't know what you're talking about, it's because you can't see yet what I'm talking about. You, got, you can't experience it, but hopefully you will. Michael Murphy, um, Navy SEAL, Operation Red Wing, you know, uh, lone survivor, Marcus Lachelle tells a story. And he, they get compromise this four person you know recon team gets compromised by a, a young kid who's herding goats and there is a you know the first reaction would have been shoot the guy and michael didn't allow that and then they had a conversation about it and there was disagreement because you know the some of the seals were like dude this is mission compromise we got to shoot this guy and while they're talking about it of course this guy runs away you know they claim in the book that they made a decision and Marcus Luttrell was, you know, part of it. I don't believe that at all, right? I think that that was convenient for Marcus to tell it that way. I think that they were really torn because their training said to shoot this guy and Mark and 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 um, the squad leader, Michael, Man, uh, not Michael Manson, but Michael Murphy was like, he, he just couldn't bring himself to do it because that spirit in him said, no, that, that's not right. And it cost him his life, right? So I don't know if you could go talk to him right now. I said, would you do the same thing over, Michael? He might, he probably would say, yeah, <laughs> but I can't, I don't know. I don't speak for him. So when you begin this practice, so your question was, when did I notice that? Well, I say that I was pretty much like that pretty early in the game, but I didn't have to answer that question until later in the game. Does that make sense? You know, could I- you- could you explain I didn't, that? well, you know, people like when we were heading up, jockeying up to go to the first desert storm war, you know, there were, I had a, um, a, a platoon mate who came in. I was the assistant platoon commander, second in charge. And this guy came in and the Lieutenant Peluso and I were sitting in the office, you know, preparing to go to war, like two days we were going to leave. And he comes in and he says, uh, I got to talk to you guys. And we're like, what's up Thompson. And he said, I, I'm not going to go. And we're like, explain yourself. He goes, I'm not going <laughs> to Iraq. And we're like, what? He goes, I can't do it. And we're like, okay. And Gino's saying, are you saying you're a conscientious objector? And this guy looked at us and he goes, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I just know that I can't go. And so, you know, to Gino's credit, I was like, oh, how are we going to handle this? And Gino says, you need to go see the pastor right now or the chaplain, they call them. So we went to see the chaplain and sure enough, they decided that he needed to be a conscious objector and, and they, he literally was able to get out of it and get out of the Navy. I remember being really kind of pissed at him because mm -hmm. he should have answered that question before he went into the teams, before he wasted millions of dollars of taxpayer dollars, before he put his entire platoon at risk for us, you know, training together for 18 months when he never was gonna go to war and, and risk killing another human being. 
which is and what took Seals a do. spot and took a spot from yeah. someone else and who took a spot would've. from someone else. Right. So through that process, I remember asking myself, "Is like, okay, okay, what does that mean for me? Can I take another life?" Mm-hmm. And I remember meditating on this, and, and the answer that came to me was, "I don't want to, but I can't." But it's going to have to be very, very clear that, you know, if this person is trying to, sh- to kill me or my teammate, yeah, I'm going to shoot him. But there might be circumstances where someone's still looks like an enemy combatant, probably is an enemy combatant, but they're not threatening my life. They're not threatening my teammate's life. They're trying to get away or whatever. And I'm going to have to ask myself, is it appropriate to shoot this guy right now or girl? Right. And so that's kind of one aspect of it. The other is, is more along the lines of the, the warrior initiating, initiating combat or war. And that's what I meant by the warriors, the last to pick up the lands. I remember uh, one of the things that profoundly impacted me is I went to uh, this Apache scout kind of training led by Tom Brown. He's a really pretty famous uh, tracker and has this outdoor survival school. And he read this poem and I got a copy of it. I don't have it in front of me, but it was profound because it was this, um, the scout and it was written by a Apache leader and Apaches were incredible warriors and they trained relentlessly and they were very spiritual, right? As you can imagine. And they were, they could be very violent, but they were very judicious with their use of violence. And they had this prayer. If they were ever going to go into violence, you know, they would say, you know, a spirit that runs through all things they call grandfather, you know, please, you know, forgive me for now must pick up the lance, bless my hand, bless my heart. Right. And help me, help me continue to feel the love for my enemy or something like that. Right. I I wish I thought to break that out. It's really profound. And, um, and that's kind of what I was experiencing is like, okay, meditation, over time kind of cracks you open and and you evolve and you get the sense of spirit and then you meet your spirit and then you live from spirit or pure awareness, which is spirit. And when you do that, you start to see that in everyone else. It doesn't matter if you're a freaking ISIS member or right, a Navy SEAL, you see that sameness and you recognize that this person is just living their cultural story and you're living your cultural story. They happen to be clashing right now. Right. And, and, you know, if, if I was like a Spartan, you know, and I was staring down the, the Persians at the hot gates of Thermopylae, I would definitely kill as many as I could. Cause there's only 300 of us and we're going to die anyways. And so, you know, and I'm trained like, and these people are, are, they're just going to try to kill us. So I'm going to do everything I can to not be killed, which means I have to kill them. But every one of them, you know, would be an unfortunate loss from my perspective. Whereas my teammates might be like, yay, whack-a-mole. Does that make any sense? Now, Absolutely. I wouldn't. Now, if I was King Leonidas and I was enlightened, I don't know what I would do. Of course, he didn't initiate, right? He didn't initiate that war. And they truly were the last and the only ones in that particular scenario to pick up the weapons and to go do the deed. And so that's very much in line with my philosophy. Like the point is you're not like the opposite is like, uh, and I know he's lauded as this wonderful 
warrior and leader, but Alexander the Great, right? Alexander the Great wasn't the last to pick up the lance. He was the first. He was a conqueror. And that's the difference between, you know, a, a warrior, like I'm talking about, a, spir- a warrior, a spiritual warrior, and a conqueror. And so he didn't care about the people he conquered. He just went and conquered him, took their land, left people in charge, moved on. It was all about his ego. Mm. Do you think? Do you think that that's right <laughs> for us to impart our judgments on people of the past? Because the way I look at it, right, is like Alexander the Great's doing his thing. He has no idea about ego, or maybe he does. I, I don't know. But let's assume that he has no idea about ego. Let's assume that he's just living to his best, like the best of his abilities in that moment. You know, I think that it's almost like theoretical, like, is this person right? But at the same time, those people are doing the best they can in that moment, right? Are we placing our judgments of what we currently know today on them from that time? That's, that's what, that's what the brain does. Yeah. Right. Uh, Yeah. I I could easily say that Trump was just doing the best he could. Right. And we shouldn't be judging Trump. Is it right to judge Trump? And and half the world would say, fuck yeah, it's right to judge him because the guy is a disaster. And the other half would say, no, we shouldn't judge him negatively because, you know, he's trying to save democracy and, and mm-hmm. take out the deep state and all that and whatever thing. And so both of them are projections mm-hmm. and both of them are judgment because that's what the brain does. The When you're in ego, you're always in some sort of positionality or opinion on something. When you're in spirit, there is no duality. There is no opinion. There is no separation. And so meditation, the point of meditation is to lead us to spirit and then to stabilize there and to live from that perspective where there is no positionality or opinion or duality and separation. Yeah. Kind of switching gears here. I want to talk about your statement. I'm feeling good. I'm looking good. I ought to be in Hollywood. I thought that is such a a clever little thing, uh, a way to to pump yourself up a way to put in a positive mantra. And I'm curious if you could tell the backstory of that, where that came from, and also what you use today, if you don't mind sharing for your own mantra or for anything that goes in your head, if uh, if you still do something like that. Of course. Yeah. In fact, I still use that one. <laughs> Feeling good, looking good, ought to be in Hollywood. Although um, you got to be careful what you ask for. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I don't actually want to be in Hollywood. So I don't have that meaning when I say that, right? If Mm -hmm. I had the meaning, then it would be different. I might be in Hollywood because, you know, you eventually get, often get what you ask for. And so that's a good place to start. I, um, I grew up in a pretty negative family. Now, of course, if they listen to this, they're like, shut up. (laughs) What are you talking about? We had a great family. And I'm like, yeah, we did in certain ways, but it was very negative and somewhat violent and my dad was very angry and prone to outbursts and bringing the belt out and smacking us and a lot of screaming between my mom and dad and yeah so um sarcasm is negative mm-hmm. and um when i started meditation i started to see that storyline and i started to see the internal dialogue going through and i i recognized and i was being modeled a different thing with nakamura 
And um, I recognized that I couldn't lead, I couldn't go forward with that. And so I needed to figure out how to override that. And at the same time, to be fair, I was reading Napoleon Hill. I read his book, Rich Think and Grow Rich, like seven times. I, I stumbled upon a Brian Tracy tape. You know, this is back with tapes, cassettes, and I listened to him couple times and I, Tony Robbins. So I was also getting that kind of that more modern look at developmental psychology and positivism and um, the power of positive thinking and these things like that. And Zig Ziglar, I, I ran into all those guys at the same couple years that I was um, studying Zen the first few years and I consumed everything. And one of the things that, that really stuck with me was that you know, in order to, it's really kind of a tough thing because we're programmed to be negative. Our culture is negative, pop, you know, TV, everything's negative. Politics is negative. And it's because our brain is negative. It's wired to be negative. It's five times as negative as it is positive. It's designed that way for survival, but, you know, we've never really figured out how to override it. And we use this, you know, as you are aware, you see behind me this picture of the wolf. We use the metaphor of the fear wolf and the courage wolf from the Native American tradition, the fear wolf is your left brain. It's your left hemisphere of your brain. It's your thinking mind. That's fear-based, negative, always looking at the threats, always trying to figure out what people did wrong or who's trying to hurt you. And, and the courage wolf is in your heart, and that's positive, heart-centered, helpful, compassionate, you know, non-judgmental. Well, of course, nowadays, we now know the heart is part of your brain as millions of neurons and your gut, your belly is part of your brain. It has millions of neurons and neurotransmitters. So it's not even fair to say that your brain is just in your head. You actually have a head brain, a heart brain and a belly brain, but the courage wolf resides in the heart because your spirit resides in your heart and your spirit is nothing but pure. There's no judgment. There's no positionality. There's no good, bad. It's just pure. Whereas the brain is designed to survive, right? It's, a, it's designed to help you survive and to help your body move toward, move away from threats and move toward opportunities and to conserve energy. So I recognized that I was constantly feeding the fear wolf in my inner dialogue and, 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 and also deeply patterned by my early childhood, right? Patterns of not feeling worthy, of feeling unsafe, of feeling incompetent, large, you know, because of my family environment. And as a, they say, the first five years dictate the next 95 for a child. My first five years were a lot of uncertainty and chaos and lack of emotional connection and stuff like that, which a lot of people deal with. Everyone listening is going, yeah, 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 me too. Not everyone, but most people or some, I don't know. It'd be interesting to know how many people have that, but someone there's, I don't think any human being escapes some form of childhood trauma. And anyone who tells me they had the perfect childhood, I'm very skeptical because I once thought that myself. Two enlightened people will still create childhood trauma from Hell someone, yeah. I, I believe. Totally. Or, yeah, because it's, it's epigenetic. Society. It's society. And then, of course, you also bring in your own karmic baggage, which can cause right. trauma. And society, you know, just being shamed or judged or whatever. Mm -hmm. It always happens. So it's there. So the fear wolf, the negative dialogue is, it's a lot of things. It's, it's soaking up the fear of society. It's, it's soaking up the fear of your teammates and your, and the people around you that you're working with and your family. And, and it's also the early childhood trauma. 
And when you sit in meditation, the mindfulness part of meditation, which begins to open up after some practice, right? Mindfulness is not easy for most people to just jump right into it. We don't recommend that as a first step in our meditative practice. We recommend arousal control to, to bleed off stress. Then we recommended attention control and concentration training to be able to really stabilize your mind and build your concentration powers. And then we recommend mindfulness. And then we combine it all into one practice. But mindfulness, which opened up for me after like year two of my training, began to like, once I had separated from my thoughts. So mindfulness requires you to decouple from your thoughts and emotions and to be able to create distance from them. And, and so first it's like partition your mind and, you're, and it's like you have this metacognitive awareness where you're able to think about your thinking. You're able to look at your thinking and think about your thinking. Then the second stage is when you connect to your to pure awareness, what we call the witness, and you're able to observe from that witness, that non-judgmental, ever-present, deep, essential nature that we have. And it generally goes in that. Very few people can go from, I'm sitting down on the bench and I'm connected to witness. Right? It doesn't happen that way usually. Can, you know what I mean? I think Eckhart Tolle's experience was that, right? Where where some Mm -hmm. people have like, or the Japanese concept of Satori, where you have this immediate and instantaneous enlightenment. Usually it's a, it's a temporary peak experience that people mistake as a permanent thing, but it can be suddenly like permanent, but it's rare at any rate. So the, when I was able to begin to watch the patterns of thinking and to lesser extent emotions, because, you know, guys pretty much are pretty narrowly, ranged in the emotional category. So mostly it was like the thinking, I saw a lot of negative patterns around my self-concept and the way I viewed the world and the belief systems and the way I talked to myself. And so I started to see that and I'm like, that's not good. I got to change that. And what was right about then that Brian Tracy was talking about the power of positive self-talk. And I was like, and he even said, if you feel unworthy or you don't really like yourself, you you know, your life isn't very going very well and, and you think it's you, then just start talking to yourself and say, I like myself, I like myself, and just do it throughout the day. And I started doing that. And I, I shit you not, it had a big impact. Right? I, I started, did the same exact thing. Did you? Good for you. I, it started to like myself. I'm like, holy shit. And then I turned it into I love myself, which is hard for a lot of guys to say. Like, I love myself. Yeah. Holy I started shit. there. I love myself. I love myself over and over. Started to cut you off. Keep going. No, no, it's, it's powerful. So simple. Not easy to do, right? Because you got to, oh, I got to remember it. But it got you've got to turn it into almost an unconscious practice. It becomes a mantra. So then when I started studying, so that was the beginning. Then I, then when I realized is I, here I am on the, on the, on the karate studio and I'm getting my ass kicked most of the time because I, I was a big, strong athletic guy. And usually like as a green belt, he'd pair me up with the black belts. And then as a brown belt, it's second or third degree black belt. And, and I didn't have the strategy and tactics and I'm always getting myself landed on my ass. And I could, I saw the negative stuff started to come up in my mind and said, Oh, you know, I love myself. Wasn't the right mantra for that moment. <laughs> right. <laughs> come on, man. Stop it. I love myself. They'd be like, bam, there you go again. So instead I started to say other things to myself. Like I got this, right. Mm-hmm. I got this piece of cake. Come on, come on, Mark. You got this easy day. And I use that one to this day. I got this easy day, piece of cake. Hoo ya. I got this easy day, piece of cake. Hoo ya. And so that really helped me. I was like, oh, okay. So now during the day, anytime I, you know, get that negative kind of chatter going, I could say, I love myself. I got this easy day, 
piece of cake, hoo Then later I learned about Emile Coué's mantra. And he was this French doctor who was having great success healing people simply with the power of belief and, and the positive self-concept and a mantra. And his mantra was day by day in every way, I'm getting better and better. So I would, of course, you know, I didn't say hoo until I got in the seals, but later on that became for me day by day in every way, stronger and better hoo hey. Mm. I, I like things to have a little jingle to them. It sticks that way. Yeah. And so these serve me well day by day in every way I'm getting better and better. I got this easy day and um, I love myself or I like myself for my day-to-day things while I was training in Zen, getting my black belt, MBA, CPA. And then I go into the seals and um, I honestly don't remember where I heard this, but I think I heard, I think we went out on a run once and an instructor actually started to sing a Jody. And one of the things he said was, we're feeling good. We're looking good. We ought to be in Hollywood. And then he went on and said something else. And that just stuck with me. And I said, hell, that's my new, that's my new mantra. And so anytime, you know, the way the seals are, it's crazy, right? So you go out on a run, you know, let's say, first of all, a lot of times they don't, if it's just a run, they don't really tell you how far it's going to be, which is just torture. You know what I mean? And they go out, the runners, the leaders who are the instructors, of course, they put the best runners in or they self-select it and they run like a bat out of hell for like a mile to sometimes two miles. Like you're going at this blistering pace. You're like, holy shit. And this is where I immediately learned that it's better to keep up than to catch up. Because mm. if you let your, if you, if you succumb to the negative mental chatter, this negative, like, holy shit, I can't do this. It's going too fast. I'll never be able to make it. I got to pace myself and you slow down and you fall behind, then you're fucked because then the instructors pull up from the rear and they actually will pull you aside and hammer you for a bit. And then, then you've got to catch up. But the instructor, what I noticed was they would always slow down after that. And oftentimes do a nice little jog to circle back Hmm. to catch the other guys who were running their asses off. And then as soon as they caught up with them, we'd, we'd start running again. So these other guys in the rear would never catch a break. They were running as fast as they possibly could, but their self-concept of fast was limited by the, the, by the beginning where they said, I've got to pace myself. I don't think I can keep up, right? I'm not that fast. Whereas if they had just given it all they had and kept up with the top five or 10 of us, then they would have had all that rest while we circled back and kind of gathered the flock. And so during those, that first like mile sprint, like you immediately hit resistance very quickly and there's nothing, there's not a bone in your body that wants to take another step. And that's when my mantra came back to me, that mantra. And I would just like nothing else in my mind, but every breath, I'm feeling good. I'm looking good. I ought to be in Hollywood. Right. Or, you know, I did it with a pattern, like inhale, three steps, feeling good. Exhale, three steps, looking mm-hmm. good. Inhale, three steps, ought to be. Exhale, three steps, Hollywood. And I just got into this really, really good pattern. And you do this and what, over time, because your mind is not thinking about anything else. Now you're just radically focused on just running and this mantra and your breath. So there's actually three things going on. But everything else crowds out. There's no chatter. You're not thinking, I can't do this. I don't know. And, um, and, then, and then you also set up these little micro goals. And so instead of saying, I'm just going to, 
I'm going to go is until he stops, you say, I'm going to go up to that sign up there. And then if I can't go any further, I'll slow down. And then once you get there, you're like feeling good, looking good, ought to be in Hollywood. I can go further. And so you choose another sign. Those are micro goals, right? Mm. So I choose the next beach sign and go to that one. And then I just keep doing that. One micro goal at a time, breath, mantra, micro goal, breath, mantra, micro goal. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, boom, he would throttle back. And that a flood of positive emotions would come. And I'd be like, ha ha, I did it. <laughs> Now I get to take a break. And we would just like trot back to the tribe. We're just really suffering. And they would hammer the guys who are, you know, they, they, uh, the guys who are, um, I forget what we call them right off the top of the head, but uh, the um, goon squad, they call them. Yeah. The people who are way at the back, they call the goon squad. Mm. They usually just carve them out and start hammering them in the middle of the beach, you know, halfway between Coronado and Imperial beach and in and out of the surf pushups. And so they're getting hammered and they still have to finish the run. Mm. So that's where that came from. Um, and to this day, I said it thousands of times a day when I went through buds to keep my mind focused on positive and to make this work, you know, it's got to have meaning. And so, so over time, you know, it's within doing this for a few weeks, you know, what that meant for me was I'm, in, I'm unbeatable, right? I didn't use mm. that term, but I am unstoppable. I'm unbeatable. I got this, right? I am a, I'm going to crush this. They can't get me to, they can't kill me. They, I'm not going to quit. They can't get me to quit. I'm a good runner. I could see myself with imagery dominating. And so anytime I started to say that, that sense of self would emerge and override the negative self-talk and the negative self-image. It's powerful. It's extremely powerful. And so this is like, one of the first things we teach in SEAL candidates and, and our, even our clients is like, you got to override the negative. You can't focus on the negative. You know, you got to do work later on when you're, when you get control back on eradicated the underlying stories that led to that negativity. But in order to control yourself in the here and now in performance, you've got to override it. You got to shout it out. You got to feed the courage wolf and starve that fear wolf. I love it. Any oxygen. So one thing that you obviously had in, in the Navy SEALs is, is camaraderie. And camaraderie is something that I think is lacking in today's society for, yeah. for our, let's just say, a 25-year-old man or really any, any age group, any type of person. We are missing a sense of belonging to a tribe that is so inherent to our nature. So what do you think the solution is? If you could speak on for a 25-year-old dude, or if you could speak on for the whole society, it's a huge question, but I'm curious what you suggest with all your experience. Well, you'll never have a sense of tribe if you don't work on yourself every day to be the best version of yourself because you're going to still feel separate or different or unworthy or whatever. There's going to be something there that, that keeps you from feeling connected or wanting that con deep connection. So the first step is to set on a path, a lifetime of practice or a path. That's what we call it, where you have a very distinct set of tools that are proven to evolve yourself to your highest and best self one day at a time. You can only do it one day at a time. That's all you got is today. Now, 
that will naturally lead you out of ego into a deeper sense of connection to other human beings. And that will allow you to be a good teammate, an effective teammate. And then naturally from there, what happens, what my experience is it happens is you're drawn into a team or a group of like-minded people to feel that sense of team and camaraderie. And you also can go looking for it. Now we, in our company, Unbeatable Mind, we are actually, we've identified that and we are actually taking steps to help people experience that connection and that camaraderie and the collaboration of a really powerful, deep team. And so we consider you know, Unbeal Mind is on one level, it's a personal development program, but it's a, it's a program of integration. You know, we train physically, mentally, emotionally, intuitionally, and spiritually every day. And with a specific purpose of evolving ourselves to the highest level possible in this lifetime and aligning with our calling and burning off our negative karma and emotional shadow. Like there's a lot going on. All of it's very important. But we also recognize that not, unlike the old yogis or the martial arts artists training alone in the forest, you accelerate your growth when you do it with other people, with a team. That's why the SEALs were called SEAL teams, not SEAL individuals. And, and the growth, especially at the emotional, intuitive, and spiritual level is, is really happens mostly when you're with a team because that's when you're getting the direct feedback, the very painful feedback often. And so we look at our, our develop, we develop leaders and teams, you know, as, as two sides of the same coin or, you know, hand and glove, developing a leader without their team is one dimensional, right? It's like old school leadership development. We call that horizontal development where you're just accruing some skills that you may have already had or knew about, but it doesn't change you who you are as a person. We do what's called vertical development, which the leadership, the leadership skills when practices, the practices, I should say, change who you are, not what you do. But as you evolve and who you are, the what you do and how you do it gets better anyways. But then, and it's largely because you're not doing everything alone anymore. You're not like the charismatic leader who's got all the answers or the hierarchical leader who's got all the power. You are now the type of leader who is able to enter into a team courageously recognizing your limitations and your faults and your judgments and your projections and are, are willing to open up to receive feedback and to allow others to flourish in spite of their own shadow and biases. And you set up a safe environment. They call that psychological safety. And you set up an environment where everyone's very clear about the expectations and the goals. And then you get the hell out of the way. And you serve them as best as possible, right? You check your ego at the door every single day. And everyone does that. And they partly do it because you're modeling you, partly because of the culture, and partly because of the way you set up the organization or the team rules to really embody this and to perpetuate and to foment this type of deep collaborative, um, cooperative connection. So we want to bring this into organizations, Worldwide, And we have a mission of training, inspiring 100 million people. We're not going to do it one person at a time. We're going to do it by bringing it into organizations that employ hundreds of thousands of people. I love it. And you know? I love what you said about you first need to work on yourself in order right. to get that whole thing going and, and to find a group. I don't want right. to keep you too long because I know you're, yeah. you got to go on the hour. Um, it's okay. But, but uh 
where can do you have any other closing thoughts before we wrap this up now it's been a wonderful conversation um i'm sorry it's been so one-sided here but <laughs> you asked really no good worries. questions that got me Thank thinking you. so you're a great interviewer I, I appreciate what you're doing danny and i wish you the best of luck with this and it's important work I will say that everyone listening, thank you for doing your own work. Um, there, you know, there's a lot of chaos going on in the world right now politically, and COVID's really side, you know, slapped people across the head, and and there's a lot of opinions and a lot of negativity. So, I encourage everyone not to get drawn into that. Remember that the locus of control rely, resides within you. So, do the work daily through breath control, concentration, and mindfulness and creating a positive vision for yourself in the future. That work, like Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world is enough. But then when you can bring it into your family through example and through modeling or into your team and recruit a team of other people who are like-minded, who want to share this journey, wow, you know, then we become, we become the change we want to see in the world. There's no, like, there's no next perfect leader. Like everyone thinks, well, half the world thought Trump was the guy. Another half now thinks Biden's the guy or, or some future leader is going to solve all our problems. No, there's no individual that's going to solve our problems. There's no, there's no institution created in the last century that's going to solve our problems. It's we acting on the level of consciousness first, then with our hands in service to the planet with a world-centric attitude of care and concern, care for others, care for ourselves, care for others, and care for the earth. They need mm. to all be in balance, right? Like, so like beautiful. I, I, we would be doomed if all we were saying is, let's go care for other human beings, but we didn't change our relationship with Mother Earth. Mm. Or if we just had like 20th century approaches to like carbon taxation and, you know, whatever, whatever those solutions were. And we didn't try to heal humanity. We were just mm -hmm. trying to, you know, protect the earth through less carbon dioxide emissions. Like that's not going to do anything either. The healing happens spiritually through consciousness. And when a certain tipping point happens where there's enough humans who have this world centric care and concern, care and concern for other humans and for mother earth and are thinking positive, vibrating positively. They're sending positive waves of energy collectively and individually around the world. Then suddenly it's just going to change because the decisions that are made at a million different levels are going to change individually as well as big corporate leaders. And you're starting to see this happen, right? And the, the big levers obviously are really important. We want those to change quickly, but again, the big levers are changed through consciousness not through force, you know, like one of my favorite spiritual teachers was David Hawkins. And he wrote a book, power versus force. And it's, it's power we're looking for, not force. And power is positive. It comes from a place of courage, forgiveness, acceptance, and love. Whereas force comes from fear. We don't want that. I got chills when you were just talking just now, because I've noticed an increase in what you're talking about throughout society. I've noticed an increase in, in that, that positive vibration. I've noticed it within sure. myself and I see it rippling and I see it changing. And I, I feel like it's only a matter of time until it is the big, the big levers come down and, and see is. that. But, you know, just expect a lot of chaos from the old or, you know, the negative falling apart. Cause it's, you know, people who aren't there yet, institutions who aren't there are, are going to grasp 
and they're going to fight to hang on to whatever force, you know, through force to hang on to whatever power they did have or whatever position mm -hmm. they did have. And everything else is happening in spite of that. And they don't understand it. Mm. So it, I have a very positive view of the future and everything's happening at its own pace, you know, and there's some, you could say there's a plan, but you know, again, I'd be lying. Cause I don't know the truth about how these things work really. I don't know how quote unquote God works, but <laughs> I do know that spiritually speaking, the yogis say that we're, we've just shifted out of the Kali Yuga, which is the darkest period of earth's rotation around the galactic center. This is really fascinating, which means we're heading into a new age. You know, some have called it the age of Aquarius or, you know, it's a new age of light, more light, more energy, more consciousness flowing through humanity. So that's positive. And that dovetails with, um, Dr. Hawkins' work, where he studied it through kinesiology, and he said that the planet Earth or humanity shifted from um, on aggregate negative, and he he scaled it from zero to a thousand. Negative was below two hundred, so it was below two hundred and up until nineteen eighty nine, and suddenly it shifted to like two hundred seven. And two hundred represents was, truth, correct? Two hundred represents courage. Courage. Yeah. But, but above 200 is the truth and below 200 is false. It's false. Right. Yeah. From that perspective, yeah. truth, truth is power. False is uh, force. Truth is represented by different levels of energy, C courage, um, acceptance, forgiveness, love, universal mm -hmm. love, you know, bliss, joy, bliss, et cetera, yep. all the way up. And so someone like Jesus would have been a th thousand vibrating at a thousand, you know, most of humanity is vibrating below 200. He's in, you know, 95%. And below 200 is pride, which some people think is positive, but it's got a negative energy because it's egoic or ethnocentric, you know, my team versus your team. And of course, all of the seven deadly sins, anger, jealousy, you know, hatred, shame being the lowest form of energy. So people living in shame, you know, it, it behooves you to get the hell out of shame and recognize your goodness turn the light around through meditation and find the goodness in your heart because in your heart is a sliver of you that's vibrating at a thousand. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> before we, before we wrap it up, do you think that if someone's let's say below 200, you think, what are you recommending them do? And obviously if you're below 200, at least when I was below 200 in my own life, it's like, I didn't know I was below 200 on the scale. You can look it up for those who are curious, David Hawkins, uh, power versus four scale. But what do you recommend if someone looks at that scale and is like, ah, you know what? I'm operating in shame. I'm operating in this. What is the first step that they can take? Most people wouldn't be willing to admit it because they'd be embarrassed. But you know, mm -hmm. if you're honest about it, like I was operating on a negative too. And you can kind of have positive moments, but you're, it's a center of gravity. It's your kind of most of your energetic thought. You're vibrating there. Well, start with, I love myself. I and love if that's it. too hard, start with, I like myself. I like myself. I like, now that takes courage. So the act of doing that is courage mm -hmm. and that's positive. And so anytime you step into your heart, you feed the courage wolf by overriding the fear wolf. Fear wolf is negative. This is negative. That's vibrating below 200 up here, the left hemisphere of your brain. We call them lefty. So you got to starve lefty. Lefty wolf, feed courage by opening up and in meditation, it could be contemplation, it could be prayer, it could be reading the Bible. You are 
literally mentally placing your awareness in your heart and you're opening your heart and you're, and you're dialoguing and reading and thinking positive thoughts and thinking about other people positively and forgiving yourself and liking yourself and then moving on to love. And then, you know, very quickly, it doesn't take a hundred years or 70, you know, it, it takes some time. It takes work. You got to do the work every day. You can't do it once a, a week. It's got to be a daily thing, but you'll find, I don't know what your experience was. You'll find the shift happen fairly quickly. And I say fairly, meaning within months, not going to yeah. happen a week. You'll start like to, to feel some changes, but three months, th- three months to nine months was when it, like for me, everything changed. Yeah. It's so crazy. In February, my man, I was depressed out of like February of 2020, depressed. February in March, COVID hits. I say, okay, I'm going to just say I love myself and see what happens. And then by May, June, I was a completely different person. So, Amazing. you know, you. and and now- and you're, You had fertile ground too. So your life experiences yes. and whoever had prepared you for this. and Absolutely. That's good. But it was just a period of darkness and led to the most light, the most love I've ever expressed, I've ever had in my entire life. And it is just a transform, like you could hopefully just tell by listening to the podcast, listening to my voice. So yeah, I'm I'm so grateful to speak to you, Mark. I could, I have questions prepared where we could go another two hours truly. So maybe we'll have to do this again in, in, uh, in the next year, whatever. When, when your podcast is in the top 0.5%, because <laughs> you're going to be there with this attitude and, and the way you interview. So you're going to be there. I really appreciate that, man. Where can people find more Mark Divine? Because I know they want more Mark Divine after this episode. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, my books are available on Amazon. So Unbeatable Mind, and I'm, I'm, updating it. So I, I'm on the fourth edition. I hope to have that done this year and it'll be a, a completely new look at that book. So that's my self-published book, my name of my company and my philosophy. So that's kind of like my think and grow rich. Um, the way of the seal is really more about, you know, the same philosophy applied toward kicking ass and taking names in performance in the world. Those, and, and then staring down the wolf is really about for leaders and how to be authentic as a leader and develop with and through your team. Those are all available, of course, at Amazon and whatnot. And then I have two training books, Core Yoga and Eight Weeks of Seal Fake, which are pretty hardcore, awesome training programs. And then my website is markdivine.com. My, I don't do social media myself. I have to declare, but I do, you know, the quotes all come from me and the videos are, you know, that have me in it are obviously mine, <laughs> but I don't like go in there and I, I have to admit, I don't respond to comments. I just don't have time. I have a t- a someone who helps me with that. But my Instagram is real Mark Divine, real Mark Divine. Facebook, we don't really do anything. Facebook, I'm, I think Facebook's evil. So <laughs> I know they own Instagram, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> These things are all going to change in a few years, anyways. And so we're looking yep. forward. But what's the next platform? Yep. And then um, if if the training of Unbeatable Mind interests you, that's the website unbeatablemind.com. And if you're a warrior athlete who just wants to get their ass kicked, but with Navy SEALs who really know how to evolve your character and make build a uh, build mentally tough warriors and athletes, sealfit.com. And we have, uh, hopefully we'll be getting back to our events in March. We're planning on holding our, our crucible events in March. We have a 12 hour, 6, 12, 24, and 50 hour nonstop crucibles. We're kind of modeled after hell week. You should come out and do it, Danny. Like I would love to do it. What, what do you think the training time on that, like how long would it take well, someone the, to train for it? 
you could do the 12 hour right now, but the right. 12 hour is designed to give you this gut check and also to help expose where you need to train if you're to go further. And the same thing, 24 hours to, to do kind of the next level of that. I don't recommend people unless they're special ops candidates who have really been training for a while to go right into the 50 hour, we call Kokoro. Kokoro mm -hmm. means merging your heart and mind and your actions. Um, and even then, or if you are an athlete, like an endurance athlete or a triathlete, it's been likened to doing like three back-to-back -back Ironman with weight. Oh my God. So it's, it's not, it's no joke, right? It's a lot of work. It could take nine months to two years to train for it. And we have mm -hmm. training um, tools and support in our SealFit Online program. You know. Very so, cool. But it's a transformational event. We say there's life before Kokoro and life after. Anything that seemed hard before you go do that event is looks pretty simple. Well, like almost almost laughable after you do it. <laughs> you've really uh, got in my curiosity, and I, I'll definitely look into it. And I think everyone listening should as well because it, it sounds yeah. awesome. It is awesome, Danny. Thanks Thank so much, you, Mark. Buddy. Yeah, who? Yeah, Thank you. take care. God bless you. That was my conversation with Mark Devine. If you enjoyed it or you didn't, let me know on Twitter at Hey Danny Miranda your thoughts and feedback about the episode. Looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening until the final seconds. I appreciate you tremendously, and I'll see you in the next one. Peace.